So today's message, I've titled The Story Behind the Ten Commandments. Who thinks they know the Ten Commandments, all ten of them? We've got one. Sheila, two, three. I could see a few people, their brains are ticking over. Hopefully by the end of today, you will know all ten in any order as asked. But that's not the purpose for the message. The purpose today is to look at the story behind the Ten Commandments. And the word story comes from a word history. And so often when we talk about a story in the Bible, the way people think of things nowadays, it can easily be just a story. But there's history in the Bible. Some people have said it's his story. But there is a story in the Bible that we need to understand. We need to understand the history of what the Word has for us. And uh, one of the problems we see in the Bible today is, well, not in the Bible, but the way we read it is so often when we read things, we read it with a Western mindset. We read the Bible thinking with our 2018 Western minds. We don't think of it, Bible days, Eastern minds. And there's a difference in the way they think compared to the, compared to the way we think. So it's important we understand some of those. Just a few examples. Uh, in Western mindset, we believe in the equality of people. A lot of people say, well, it's all about me. And my whole world revolves around my dreams, my desires. And that's getting pushed more and more. An Eastern mindset back in Bible days was that value comes from your place in the hierarchy. So it looks at something beyond just me. It actually looks at the hierarchy, the order of people above me, beyond me, the people who hold me accountable, the people who speak into my life, the people who are there to support me. There's a much greater mindset than just what I want. It's family. It's, it's bigger. Our Western mindset today, we have a man-centered universe. The Eastern mindset is God, tribe, and family-centered universe. Again, it's much bigger than us. Someone's worth today is based on money, material possessions, and power. It's where people get their worth from, possessions. In an Eastern mindset, somebody's worth is derived from their family relationships. So if they were kicked out of their family, their sense of worth was very, very low. A Western mindset, time points on a straight line. And we, we would look at a timeline and we say, well, at this particular point in time, on January 5th, 1947, at four o'clock, this happened. We like to be very, very specific. In Eastern mindset, time is determined by content. And so you might, you might read verses like, on the day that, that uh, Israel was delivered from Egypt, or the, I remember one verse, in the day that King Uzziah died, there's a reference to a, an action that happened on the day. So the thinking in Eastern mindset is different to how we think today. So when we read the Bible, we need to think, what is the Bible saying? So when you hear the word commandment, what words come to mind? How would you describe a commandment today? An order? Yep. Instruction? A rule? From a higher power? So there might be law involved. So there's a number of words. We hear commandment and we think, bang, there's a rule here. The Ten Commandments are not a set of rules. There's something else. They are morals. They're things we've got to look at today, and there's a number of things in there. But I want to look at something a bit deeper than that. 
out of the Ten Commandments, the only two today that are a law are don't steal and don't kill. Is there a law against working on the Sabbath? What would happen if we said as a church, we went to the shopkeepers of Kingston and said, the Bible says keep the Sabbath day holy. We demand you close your shops. We'd be called all sorts of names. Is honour your father and mother a law today? We certainly see that it doesn't happen like that. Only worship one God. How do you think it would happen if the, uh, the Prime Minister passed a law that we are only going to worship our God, all other gods were now banned. <laughs> is there a law against having idols in your house? Is there a law against lying and coveting things that aren't yours? So if we look at the, in the Eastern mindset, if we think of it as laws, this doesn't make sense. But if we say, what is, what is the Bible talking about? What's behind the Ten Commandments? we see something very, very interesting. And they're not a conditional set of rules for behavior that we need to follow in order for God to love us. So does that mean we ignore them? No. What we're going to look at is what the Bible talks about. And for this to happen, I want to look at some, uh, some Hebrew words that tie in with marriage that, uh, that will explain this a bit greater. So the first word is lakach. Say that with me, lakach. All the Dutchies should be able to do this quite well. For those who don't, clear your throat. The second one is segula. I'll get these up. Segula. The third one is mechfa. Say it out loud, clear your throat, mechfa. Next one is ketuba. And the last one is chupa. Now you probably won't remember all these words at the end of the service, and that's not what today's about. What I want to get is these words have strategic placement in Hebrew culture that we need to understand. The last one, chupa, means canopy or chamber. And we'll look at, we'll look at that a little bit further, further on. But we're going to start with the first one. The word lachach means I will make you mine. So when the Israelites hear that word, or particularly when it comes to relationships, if a girl is going out with a guy or they, they connect and a guy says, Lakach, he is saying, I want you to be mine. When I was at school, the guy would say to the girl, would you go out with me? Similar principle, I want you to be mine. And she's going, okay, there's a five-step process for marriage this is step one. So they develop this relationship. They go on and on and on. And over time, her girlfriends are saying, has he said Segula yet? No, he hasn't. I don't, know, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's happening. And she's waiting and waiting and waiting. And one day he turns around to her and says, Segula, you are my treasured possession. It's not a, not a phrase that he goes into strongly because that is officially the next step in the process towards marriage. In her mind, she'd be getting excited. She goes, now things are starting to move. She'd be telling her girlfriends, he said Segula to me. The third one is very romantic. 
honey, it's time to wash. And again, we think Western mindset. In their day, this was a cleansing ceremony that went for three days because they knew at the end of three days, ketubah would happen, the signing of the marriage contract. Now, this wasn't actually the marriage ceremony. This was the, the rules they put in place when they're going to get married. And it's interesting because her family and his family would get together to make this ketubah. She would be there, he would be there, and the two fathers would be there as witnesses. And they would put everything in the contract for their marriage that they wanted in there. And I mean everything. There were certain rules and guidelines that had to be in there. He had to provide for his wife. He was the provider of the house. Part of his marriage contract is he will provide her with a house, with food, and with clothing. Conjugal rights, including sexual expectations, were included. So if he wanted to have sex three times a week and she agreed to it, she was required by law, by the contract, to fulfill that. He was required to do things. She was required. And it wasn't a case of, I demand this, this, and this. Everything went in there. They had these discussions, and they said, yes, I agree. They would sign off on it. Everything went into place. Now, at the end, if actually they, if they didn't fulfill those commitments, that was called marital unfaithfulness. They were unfaithful to the contract that they had written in front of the witnesses. Other things in there would be his guarantee to pay a certain sum in the event of a divorce and inheritance rights given to the heirs in case he dies before his wife. Now, the reason it was so important was because in Bible days, it was a patriarchal society and the women needed protection. So the ketubah was designed for her protection. Every legal tone in this matter was developed so that the husband could not regard it easy to divorce her. He was committed. It was actually a contract to bind him to her rather than the other way around. Some, uh, one author said it was a charter of women's rights in marriage and of man's duties. So here's where we tie it all together. In, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, we see the Ten Commandments are given. But I want to look at some of the verses around that. In Exodus chapter 6, and we're looking for these particular phrases. The first one, I will make you mine. In Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, God says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. So Israel hear God say, I will take you as my people. They're going, hang on a second. He just said, Lakach. They understand something is now in play, and they're now looking for this process to continue. And that word Lakach is actually used in the Hebrew. When God says, I will make you mine, that word is actually used in the scripture. So they hear that word and they know something is happening. Next we see in Exodus 19 verse 5, Now therefore you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So the people are listening and they're going, He just said, Segula. 
We're now step two in the process of a marriage covenant. And if the process goes according to their culture, the next phrase they're looking for is, it's time to go and wash. How many people here would like it if their husband or wife said to them, it's time to go and wash? You stink. But the process isn't about having a bath. The process is about cleansing yourself. And if we look at Exodus 19, only five verses later, the Lord says to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So they're now at mikvah. They've seen all three stages. They said, we're now at the time we have to wash. We know what's coming in three days. This isn't a question of what's next. As soon as you're told to go and wash, you have three days to get ready because at the end of three days, ketubah is happening. You know what happened next in the Bible? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a marriage proposal, not a set of laws. And if we consider the concept that the ketubah is there for the protection of the bride... God is saying there's a set of rules in here that require me to bind myself to you. Now, we understand marriage today that I am the only, the only man that Robin's going to be married to. There is no one else and vice versa. So when we look at some of the, uh, the commandments, we look at all the commandments. The first one, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You will have no gods before me. We understand that from any marriage that the husband or wife says, I am the only one. There is no one else. And there better not be anybody else or something will happen. Now God says, I am God. Now keep in mind, 430 years of slavery, they've served in Egypt. They've seen their gods. They've seen all sorts of things there. And if we look at something like a totem pole, it has a list of all the different gods and things on there. And it's in the shape of a number one, so it's easy to remember. We've got all these different gods there. God's saying, none of that. I am the Lord your God. I am the one you have relationship. I am the one you are married to. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You will not bow down for them. You will not serve them. Now imagine you've carved this beautiful swan. You stick it on the mantelpiece. And every time you walk past it, you worship it. Who would do that today? Not many of us. Now, while there's an issue with idols and, and, and some religions still have their idols, we can actually go further than that and say this is a marriage covenant. God doesn't want anything before him. No pictures of previous boyfriends. No other gods. But beyond that, he says, you will not bow to them, you will not serve them. So what things do we serve today? 
What things do we have to do today? I have to go to the gym. I have to play Fortnite. I have to hang out with my friends. I have to, I have to, I have to. There are things we are required to do. We are required to work. We're required to go to school. So you can't say, uh, I'm not going to school anymore because the second commandment says I shouldn't. But what things have you? Because God says, I'm the only one that should have your heart. I'm the only one that should be uh, getting your attention. All this other stuff gets put aside. You can have a statue in your house. That's fine. But if you start worshipping that statue, that statue takes a place it shouldn't. So the second commandment, you will have no carved images. The third one, you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, can you imagine being a Christian after church, going to McDonald's, and they mess up your order, and you give them an absolute serve? You might swear. You might abuse them. And we often look at, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, doesn't actually refer to swearing, although that is a part of it. It's if you marry me, you have power of attorney to use my name. Don't abuse it. Don't put it on things that I wouldn't sign my name to. But on top of that, the Hebraic translation literally reads, you will not carry the name of the Lord in vain. So if we're going to carry the name of the Lord, when people look at us, they should see Jesus. They should see him through the way we act. They should see him through the way we talk. They should see him through how we serve our bosses. Don't carry the name of the Lord in vain because if people look at you and say, you're supposed to be a Christian, that's breaking this. If I'm married to God, I represent him everywhere I go, not just on Sundays. So I carry his name. I can't take his name in vain. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The New Living Translation says uh, that the Sabbath is dedicated to the Lord, not whatever you want to do. So this is God's day. Now, can you imagine on Sunday, it's a beautiful sunny day like today, you decide, I'm not going to go to church, I'm going to take the boat out. I'm going to go sailing. Keeping the Sabbath day holy is a little bit like having date night with God. That's God's day. I'm there to worship Him. I'm, I'm there to exalt Him. I, I need to live my day for Him. And God says, out of all the seven days in the week, one day, that's my day. Don't mess it up. I want to build a relationship with you. I want to spend time with you. Can you imagine a husband every second or third week, if there's a regular date night going, you know what? I'm just not going to show up tonight. She'll be at the restaurant. I understand that. But, man, it's a, it's a good day for golf. Or the fish are biting. I'm going to go out with my mates. I'm going to go for a bike ride. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. How do you think your marriage would go if your wife was left sitting in the restaurant? She'd be asking questions. God says, the Sabbath day is my day. Don't give it up for anything else. The fifth one, honour your father and mother. The word honour means to add weight to. 
as babies and toddlers, all they want is their parents, particularly their mother. But as you get older, we start to think more and more about ourselves. This is what I want. It's all about me. But the Bible says we are to honour our parents. And unfortunately in society today, we don't see much of that. Western mindset, if we come back to that, it's all about me. Why would I place somebody above me? Because then it means I have to submit to them. It means my dreams and everything get governed by them. But in Eastern mindset, they understand that value comes from your place in the hierarchy. And the place I have, my parents are going to speak into my life. There's free wisdom and advice from our parents. They've lived it. They understand it. They can give us the advice. But also on top of that, they can help us. So up the line isn't a bad thing. And we need to honour because value comes from your place within the family. And God says, if you're going to marry me, we're going to be family. And you need to understand the principles of family. Honouring your parents is one of those principles. The next one, you shall not murder. Now imagine somebody's hurt you or done you wrong. You're playing with your yo-yo on top of a car park and you see them down below. And think, I could just hit them on the head and kill them. We, we would say, well, we wouldn't do that nowadays. But again, keeping in mind, the Israelites were used to 430 years of slavery. For them to be killed for something was normal. They understood that. But God says, if you're going to be married to me, I am your protector. This is another thing that binds us to God or binds him to us. He says, I am your protector. You don't kill other people. I give life. You don't take it away. You shall not murder. The seventh one, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not their husband or wife. Now, under Old Testament law, somebody who committed adultery would be stoned. We live in Australia, so we might use something like a boomerang. But the principle of stoning them for adultery is saying you've, you've broken that covenant. You've been maritally unfaithful. The contract we have, you broke that. You therefore need to be stoned. And I think it's interesting, it doesn't say fornication, because adultery is, is intercourse between a married person and someone who isn't their husband or wife. Fornication is intercourse between two people who are unmarried. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, why is fornication not mentioned in this? Because this is a marriage proposal. This is a spiritual marriage. You are supposed to be spiritually married to God. Therefore, he doesn't need to talk about fornication because you're already married. But he says, I am the Lord your God. I am your provision of joy. I am your satisfaction. I am everything else. If you need anything, you come to me. Don't go looking anywhere else because I am your husband. Matthew 25, uh, sorry, Matthew 5, 27 to 28 says, You've heard it was said of old, you will not commit adultery. But I say to you that even whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Some people might say, well, it's a bit hard. You look, you see, it's easy. We're required to be in control even of our minds. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue or if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You are in control of your mind. 
So choose to think on things that honor God. The eighth commandment is you shall not steal. Think of a set of eyes. Who's ever owned anything of value? You want to watch over it. You want to protect it. If we have things that are valuable, how, how do you feel if somebody takes that away from you? Who's ever had anything stolen? How do you feel when it's gone? Not good? You, you don't feel good. You feel horrible. That was mine. I worked hard for that, and it's gone. How dare they? There's a whole, a whole bunch of emotions in there. So God is saying, I am your provider. You don't need to steal from anybody. You don't need to take what isn't yours because I'm your provider. If you need anything, you come to me. In a marriage relationship, if God can't provide for us, then he's failed on the marriage and we have every right to divorce him. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Amen? You shall not steal. The ninth one is you will not bear false witness against your neighbor or you will not lie. Who's ever been fishing? Who's ever said they caught a fish bigger than it really was? Don't need to. Michael catches great fish. <laughs> but you ever hear the phrase, it was this big? Some fishermen might have a tape measure that's a little bit out of order that says, well, it's, it's 10, 10 centimeters or 20 centimeters depending on the fish. And their measurement might be slightly out where it's really only five or maybe 10. But we're not supposed to be lying. And if we wear God well, as we talked about in the third, uh, the third covenant, the third um, commandment, thank you. If we're going to wear God well, we don't need to lie because we represent him in everything we do. So we shall not lie. The tenth commandment, you will not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, can you imagine living in a house where I'll say mum doesn't cook real nice and your, your next door neighbour, his mum is a chef and every single night he gets whatever he wants. He gets this great food and you go, I don't want to live in my house anymore. I want to live in his, his house. I want what he's got. Yeah, I want a new mummy. Coveting is wanting something that's not yours. Who's ever looked at a nice car and go, I'd love one of those? <laughs> what sort of car was it, Zachary? A Porsche 911, yeah. <laughs> but we shouldn't be coveting what's, what's not ours because, again, God is our provision. The commandments are part of a marriage covenant. Now, here's a bit of a test. I've got a few chocolates here. Who can remember or say the fourth commandment? I think Flynn's hand was first. Nice. Hopefully I won't hit anybody with these chocolates. They do have ingredients on the back, so if you're allergic to them, <laughs> give them back to me. Or find somebody who won't, uh, who won't die from eating them, because there's probably nuts in these. What's the second commandment? Oh, no, 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 no. She put her hand up. Idols. Well done. 
So no graven images. What's the eighth commandment? Ooh, you're not supposed to be eating chocolate, but I'll, I'll let you give it to someone if you get it right. Don't steal, nice. I need more chocolate. Third, Manny, stop looking at mum's notes. Do not cheat. <laughs> Jono, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Tenth, she just gave it away. Yep. <laughs> Don't look at other people's food you want. Who's covered in chocolate right now? Fifth commandment. I think Adam was first. Was that hand not up? It was sort of like, all right, Zachary, obey, honour your parents. Now, I think Manny's going to try and tackle this one first, so we'll go long. Ninth commandment. <laughs> ben. Do not lie. Nice. What have I missed? First commandment. Flynn. Nice. You're on a roll. I guess I have to give you that one. <laughs> Number six, do not kill. Have I missed any? Seven. Have I done seven? We'll do it again. Michael. I commit adultery. So who thinks they know, using all these pictures, who thinks they've got a fair idea of what the Ten Commandments are now? I'm not, I'm not giving you a chocolate for this one. <laughs> but keep in mind that it's part of a marriage covenant. Now, on top of that, these were people who lived in slavery for 430 years. Some of this was a, a way of life, an adjustment for them. And so they're going, hang on. I don't have to steal to get anything anymore. I can handle that. We've worked every day of our lives for 430 years or through the generations. You mean I have a day off each week? Sure. I can handle that. It was a change of thinking for them. But for them to realize that as slaves, we've gone from slavery with all our baggage, with all the problems that we have, with all the, the life struggles that we have, and God still wants to marry us? That was an amazing place for them to come to, to understand that God, the creator of everything, wants to marry them. And if we look right throughout the Bible, the Bible refers to the church as the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. And Jesus is coming back and the Bible talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when you look at the, uh, the fifth word in marriage, chupah, not only does it mean canopy or covering, the place in the ceremony is when after they've signed the, uh, the ketubah, the groom would say to his wife or wife-to-be, behold, I go and prepare a place for you and I will not return until my father says it's good enough. We have a marriage covenant with God. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And people said, when are you coming back? No man knows the day or the hour but my father. The Bible talks strongly about a marriage covenant. And it's so readily destroyed in society today. And the reason is because Satan knows the value of marriage. He knows what the Bible says. And if he can break it down and weaken its power, weaken its authority, any comprehension we have of comparison to what a good marriage is gets destroyed. We need to read our Bible. We need to understand the principles and, and go beyond just listening on Sunday. Study the Bible yourself. Listen to sermons. Listen to people that teach you and teach you well, not teach you rubbish. You do need to be wise what you listen to. But the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. The Ten Commandments are not just a set of laws. There's, there's moral standings in there that are great, but it comes back to God is my father. God is my husband. And it's, it makes, it's difficult for me as a guy to comprehend that, but I understand marriage. I understand the fact that I am a part of the bride of Christ. He is my provider. I am supposed to wear him well. And as people get married, as, uh, you know, over the years, they often say that people become more and more like each other the longer they're married. I want to become more and more like Christ. I'm required to do that. He's not going to become more like me because he's perfect. And I know I've got a lot of work to do. But no matter who we are, know that God has a plan for your life, that God cares about you, that God loves you, that God says, there is things that I have in store for, for my bride. And God will provide, God will look out for us. Let's all stand up. I'm going to ask the music team to come forward. Just those phrases again right from the start. I will make you mine. You will be my special treasure. It's time to wash because we're about to sign the marriage proposal and that God wants to take us into his marriage chamber. And know that when Jesus comes back for us, he's not coming back just to take us to heaven. He's coming back for a royal wedding that will outdo any wedding we could ever see on TV. It's going to be a good wedding. But we're supposed to be the bride. And it was interesting that once somebody was betrothed, they wore a veil over their face. And that veil said, I am committed. I'm not available for anybody else. I'm committed. I am sold out because I am betrothed. When Jesus becomes Lord of our life, we're saying, I accept the marriage proposal. I'm witnessing what has been put in place. I, I understand what God has put there and I want to be with you for the rest of my life. I'm committing myself to God for the rest of my life because one day there's going to become a heavenly marriage and I want to be there. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the love that you have for us, the great love that you have for us. So much so that while we were sinners, you died for us. You put a whole system in place for us to be able to become married to you. And if we look at the Old Testament, we see the slaves, people who've been in slavery, God said, you're the ones I want to marry. 
God loves us as we are. We don't have to become perfect. We don't have to do anything to to tick a box. God says, I love you just as you are. You might feel that you've lived your life and you've dishonoured God in some ways. You haven't worn him well. That you haven't functioned well as his betrothed bride. And if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand. We're just going to pray together. But you might say, I've got to make some changes in my life. And I don't want to leave this place today knowing that there's people here who haven't said, God, I want to give you everything. I just want everyone to pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you've given everything for me. I surrender my life to you. I want to be your bride. When you come back for your bride, I want to be there. I thank you for everything you've given me. I choose to live my life for you. I choose to honour you. I choose to put you first. You are my only God and I will serve no other. I thank you for all you've done and I ask you to be Lord of my life in Jesus' name. Amen.